I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Luke Bergstrom, an M&A partner at Latham Watkins in Silicon Valley in San Francisco and global vice chair of the firm's M&A practice and of its global technology group. Luke, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about a few things on today's podcast. We're going to talk about how you ended up in Silicon Valley and at Latham. We're going to to talk about your work in firm management. And finally, we're going to talk about your hobby of making your own cocktails. So with that, tell us a little bit about your background, how you ended up in the law, and how you migrated out to Silicon Valley and ultimately to to life. Sure. Happy to do so, David. So I started practicing back on the East Coast. I practiced for four years at Jones Day in my family's hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was actually the first time I'd spent any appreciable time in Pittsburgh because I grew up overseas. My father worked for Westinghouse Electric, and we spent a, a fair amount of time in my childhood in Europe. And when I got back, I went off to college, grad school. Finally, when I realized I had no marketable skills, I ended up in law school in Pittsburgh. And then from there, I, I started to practice. was there for four years. This was coming out of the 92 recession, and things were still a little iffy in the economy and in Pittsburgh at the time, still trying to remake itself from the steel town it was to a leader in healthcare and education that it is today. But that wasn't you know, all that apparent to me that it would be successful. So at some point, I decided to move west. And I came out to Silicon Valley during the dot-com era. And what was that transition like? Had you, I mean, you, you'd lived a lot in Europe, but had you, had you lived in California? And there was a frenzied quality. I did not visit Silicon Valley in the late 90s, but when you pick up the phone and call someone, it was like they were almost on a different planet. So what was it like to go out there in 1998? Yeah, it was a culture shift for sure. And particularly in terms of the practice, the tempo was, you know, at that time was just so much faster paced than, you know, what I had experienced. And the quality of the work, the level of sophistication and complexity that was associated with it was, you know, it was a challenge. It was really interesting. It was just such a vibrant time to be practicing out here. So I kind of felt like my practice just hit the boost button as soon as I came out. And I practiced for five years in the M&A group at Cooley Godward before moving over to Latham. So I experienced the highs of the dot-com era and the lows of the dot-bomb era, and then moved over to Latham and caught a ride on the private equity train in particular when that was really heating up. And yeah, I guess that was in 2004 is when I moved over. It sounds like you were very focused on M and A. You were you were never attracted to work in VC, and though you did some PE work, you still at this point do a lot of work for strategics. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely been more my, my practice over the years. Still to this day, I, I have private equity clients I work with particularly clients that are focused on technology or healthcare, I'll work with them. So it's a marriage of my 
industry expertise in, in tech and life sciences, as well as the work that I've done at the firm, uh, which has included PE from the time that I got here. But yeah, a significant chunk of my practice, quite frankly, is is for strategics. And, and as you mentioned earlier, I, I'm a co-chair of our company M&A practice group. And how did you get into that role? Was that something that was really appealing to you or it was more that Latham expects that at some point in people's careers, they're going to have a management role? Yeah, I think it was punishment, David. Uh, (laughs) I I think uh, if you talk too much, this is what happens to you. Now, I've always had an interest in that side of the business, right? Uh, Latham is a living, breathing partnership that is certainly key to our culture overall, but we are a business and been interested in that aspect of practicing law for for quite some time. So I think it's a combination of people seeing that you have that interest and you continuing to express that you think there are things that could be done differently that somebody finally says, hey, why don't you go do it then? And you find yourself in that role. And I've been doing that for four years now. And how did that start? Did you have a, a management role in the Silicon Valley office that grew into something larger? I did not. But I think in my case, we were really at a time in the firm uh, five, six years ago, I'd say when really the focus on what we could do around building out our Bay Area practices, particularly on the corporate side, was really something that was receiving greater and greater attention within the firm's strategic goal setting. And M&A was certainly one of the key aspects of that. And as you mentioned before, I mean, we are a firm where people are asked to take on management roles from time to time throughout the lifespan of their career. So I was at the right vintage with a motivation to do it. And really what's been fascinating for me is it's really come at a time when uh, the firm as a whole has started to shift its focus in terms of management from uh, what was a, a little bit more geographic-centric approach to one that is more heavily focused on practice groups and industry groups. And I think uh, as we've gotten larger, we've always been able to maintain a culture of a one-firm firm where we don't have separate profit centers. We do try and get work to the best athlete available wherever that person may be. But as we've gotten larger and we've touched upon clients whose needs are global and they span different practices across the industries that they participate in, what we found is, is that it becomes more and more critical that we have a management structure and decision-making structure that kind of matches up to what our clients' needs are in terms of not just don't think of us locally, think of what you can do for us globally, think of what you can do for us across various practice groups. So I think more than anything, this was just driven by a desire to meet our clients' needs. But it has been a shift to some degree, right? So we have a culture, a very deep, longstanding culture of teamwork and entrepreneurialism, where it's always been a collection of partners with a lot of autonomy going out there to capture as much work as they can. And what we've tried to do is layer over that some additional connectivity from a platform standpoint that doesn't inhibit that entrepreneurial spirit, but instead enables it to flourish by making more connections throughout the firm. So it's a fascinating time to be engaged in this. 
you know, we'll never be a top-down command economy type approach to management. Instead, we are trying to find ways to grease the skids of entrepreneurialism and make sure that that spirit is enhanced by creating connection amongst our partners around the firm. So leading in a management role like this is much less about telling people what to do than it is inspiring them to follow along. So what does that mean for the average corporate or M&A partner at Latham? And what does it mean for a general counsel or senior in-house lawyers in terms of how you want them to perceive you and how you want to interact with them? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, you know, why would you do all this if at the end of the day, it it wasn't about creating better client service? Because if you don't do that, if that's not your focus, you're ultimately not going to improve your bottom line, right? And that's what we're focused on. Like I said, it's a business. And, you know, if I'm a general counsel, I think what I want to know is that my entry point into the system recognizes that my problems may be beyond what that one person can solve. And I want to know that that person, that entry point is going to ensure that the best people that the firm has to offer wherever they may sit and whatever their particular skill set is, that they will be able to access those people and bring them in as part of my team, right? Because that's what a general counsel wants to know, I think, is is that their outside counsel view themselves as part of that team and that your approach is then built around trying to solve issues for that general counsel. If you're doing that, then we can talk about how do we make money off that? But at root, that's what you need to be able to do. And what we try and do on the management side at the firm is highlight and emphasize that that is the core objective for our clients. And therefore, our approach to them needs to be built around problem solving for them on a global basis across our platform. So our platform is geographic. It has discrete industry focus, but it also, our platform is based on a host of leading practice groups globally, right? And so our objective is, and essentially the value proposition for our individual partners is, you come work here and you will tap into this platform for your clients. You will be able to solve problems for them that are far in excess of what you as an individual attorney can do. And the people that are most successful on our platform are people who look at that that teamwork ethos and that ability to cross-sell in other practices or other geographies to our multinational clients. And when they see the benefit of that, even here in the Valley, with some of our smallest clients that are going global within a year of being formed, to have that ability to bring to them deep regulatory expertise, expertise in a host of practices across the globe is a tremendous advantage for us. But it was about unlocking that. It's about making that available to our clients that is so critical And to be able to inspire people within the firm to see the benefit of that, I think, has really been kind of our secret sauce. So it sounds like a lot of this is focusing on your existing clients and thinking about ways you can do more of their legal work as as opposed to maybe the cliched view of the rainmaker as someone who just goes out and 
really enjoys pitching and enough of those pitches work out that the lawyer does well and the firm does well. Yeah, I, you know, I think what we've been very successful in, in terms of you know, educating our partners on is the benefit of hunting in packs, not trying to set yourself up as that single point of success or failure, but instead to be sensitive and attuned to the fact that the more expertise we bring to bear, the deeper our relationships with our clients will grow. And uh, this is still a game about judgment and relationships. You know, there's a lot of technical expertise that goes into what we do, whether it's a tax lawyer, an M&A lawyer, an appellate lawyer. But it really comes down to the relationships you build and the trust that your clients have in your judgment. And I think the more that they can see that you are willing to bring in others within your firm that have that same focus on their issues, but have the expertise to solve it, the the deeper that relationship grows and the more trust they have in you to deliver on their most complicated issues on a global basis. And and so does this demand a fair amount of education of your own partners about the skills of partners who are in other offices, perhaps in other countries, certainly in other practice groups? How much of that do you engage in yeah, that's an excellent question, David. I, and I think it's, it's absolutely critical, right? I mean, you can sit there and, and, and again, this goes back to, are you leading through inspiring people and educating them? Or are you leading people by telling them what to do? I think the latter doesn't work when you have people, the typical law firm partner. I mean, it's, it's just not why people come to work at firms like this. They, they appreciate that degree of autonomy they have to kind of chart their own course. And as I said, we don't want to squelch that entrepreneurial spirit. But if what you can do is educate them on the capabilities that the firm has, then they're going to be more likely to bring that in. And uh, the more they do that, it becomes kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy because they see the benefits of it and they do it over and over. And you become more knitted together and more successful that way. But yeah, I think we do a a ton of education on what our partners do. And and we do that both at the practice group level as well as at a broader firm level because we have pockets of expertise that are really – quite deep and quite successful in their own right. And you'd be surprised how many times you get a call about a client saying, hey, I want to do a deal in this industry, in this region, and I just don't know who to go to. Would you all be able to look at this? And you can say, yeah, we've actually done X number of deals in that space, in that region, and we'd be more than happy to tap into it, you know, our expertise there. And I can tell you that I've worked with this partner two or three times, and they practice the way I practice, right? There's this culture of trying to be a problem solver that I think is one of the key reasons people come to Latham, the creativity we have, the culture of teamwork that we foster. And I think general counsel love that. So being able to say that we have that capability and that you've worked with these people before it creates a level of trust. You're vouching for these folks. And so we're not just some random assortment of partners who don't really get together and don't know each other. We actually know each other quite well. So how much time do you spend on that? How how many times a year under normal circumstances would you try to bring, say, the entire partnership together or the M&A group together? Or, I mean, we've been talking mainly about your work with the M&A group or the technology industry group together. 
Yeah, it's relatively frequent. Like many firms, whether it's a monthly M&A group meeting, we have our annual M&A partner meeting, or I should say the M&A group, uh, where we actually bring out the associates and our counsel as well. And those types of things are fairly common fare for firms of our size. But I think in addition to that, we've seen this this year where I think it's been really difficult to try and keep people connected. We've instituted a series of calls just to give people an opportunity to speak about what they're seeing, not just on specific COVID-related issues, but to talk further about initiatives that we have been pushing forward as a group of practice group chairs that we don't want people to lose sight of, everything from national staffing models to working with our an engaged thought leadership committee to work on other areas within our, our group where what we want to be able to do is to communicate to people, look, you've put us in charge. We're stewards of this group. We're essentially servant leaders to you all. And we look at our job is to try and uh, develop this strategy and push it forward. And as part of pushing that forward, we need to be able to describe for you what we're doing so that you can hold us accountable. Yes, we're, we're leaders here, but we're also servants in that respect. And we've spent an awful amount of time just trying to make sure people understand that uh, despite the fact that we're not connected in a physical way, that the bonds that we've been developing and that are a hallmark of this firm, that they remain intact and that we're quite frankly trying to strengthen them at a time when other people might say, geez, I just want to keep my head down and, and not have another Zoom call. You mentioned when we talked yesterday that you try and use as much data as you can to analyze your business and what works best. Is there anything that you've discovered in looking at that data that's come as a surprise to you? Or are these kind of intuitions say that your best customers are the ones you should try and do more work for that, that you might have had earlier in your career have, have been confirmed by looking in a detailed way at your numbers over the past several years? You know, in terms of establishing a, a strategic plan, we spend an awful lot of time looking at different metrics to try and figure out what, what is it that we would lay out there to define success for this group, both in the short term and in the long term. You know, there, there's not a science to it for us. We actually came up with a set of strategic initiatives to meet our objectives that were both qualitative and quantitative. And that was based in part on what we had seen, not just in data, but also in discussions with all of our M&A partners as we went through developing a strategic plan about five years ago. Obviously, it went through planning. Latham does that extremely well. Uh, there's a real long-term focus on planning. But within the M&A group, we felt it was time to look at where we were and see where we wanted to go. And to your question about, you know, are there things that you saw that were maybe surprising? You know, I think for us, our practice is a global practice that is to some degree rooted in the localities where we practice. Now, we have a phenomenal cross-border practice, a phenomenal international practice. I think that's all borne by the league tables this year, where I think through the third quarter, we're uh, number one in volume and value. But 
what we found is in looking at this is we do a lot of work, not just at the highest end, but we also do work uh, in the mid market. And so for us, our focus can't just be on one aspect of that practice. We play across an entire value range. And that raises a whole set of issues that you might not have if all you're doing are a limited number of mega deals each year. Now, we certainly get our fair share of those. You can see that in in this year alone in, in our standings and some of the deals we've done. But we're also doing a ton of smaller deals. To be able to do that, we need to be efficient because who we're competing against on those smaller deals is is a vastly different set of competitors than we would see at the highest end of the dollar value curve. So for us, within our strategic plan, one of the things we look at is leveraging technology. Can we use artificial intelligence, for instance, to set up a data project and move through a due diligence project at a much faster clip than if we were just throwing a gazillion associates at it. We have spent several years now building out that capability in a way that I think is quite unusual in particular for a US-based firm. But for us, it was a no-brainer to do when we looked at the data. Another aspect we look at is really just how much work comes off of our global platform and how critical that is to our overall success, not just as a firm, but as a practice group. So the data led us to look at it and say, yeah, absolutely, we want to continue to emphasize our ability to do cross-border M&A in a way that other firms may not have the capabilities. I mean, some of the deals that we've done in the last few years are very unique deals on a cross-border perspective. And it's because we have capabilities beyond just our pure M&A team in terms of capital markets, international tax, compensation benefits, our data privacy people, all of these who practice on a global basis and have local expertise that enables us to really service clients in a way all from Latham, as opposed to bringing in local counsel, that I think really sets us apart from a number of our key competitors. And talking about the clients, I mean, one of the ways, honestly, you relate to your clients is through cocktails, as, as crazy as that might sound, in, in a more sophisticated way than that question might initially suggest. Tell us a little bit about your interest in cocktails, how it started, some of the things you have created. David, this is a dangerous area to, to get into, but uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, and you and I have talked about this a, a number of times. And when this pandapocalypse subsides at some point and we can get together in the same city, I'm looking forward to us doing so over a cocktail. But yes, I do have a, a pretty sustained interest in not just drinking cocktails, but of making them. And one of the things I do typically at the end of each year for as a holiday gift is I spend a little bit of time barrel aging some classic cocktail recipes. Some folks know and others that worked on or stolen the specs for some of my favorite bars around the world. And so I'll put those into some fine American oak toasted medium char barrels for a couple months and then bottle them, seal them up and label them nicely and get them out to clients. It's a labor of love. And it certainly is a way to say thank you to people who've paid us an awful lot of money over the prior year. But it is a nice way to connect. Now, what I found, though, is, is that people like them so much that last year, for various and sundry reasons, I wasn't able to get them out. And all of a sudden, I had some clients saying, geez, what happened? Why am I not on the list this year? 
And so careful what you wish for, but can create some unintended consequences there if you have to stop for some reason. So just a couple more questions. First of all, do you buy your own barrels? Do you you order the toast on them yourself? Yeah, I I absolutely order all all my own stuff for this. It's taken over my garage or at least one part of it. It's it's an affliction and I've got to get this under control. But yeah, and I I make my own bitters and get great liquor for each of the recipes. And so what I'm sending out to clients is something that I know that I would drink wherever any high-end bar that I would go to and that if they were at a high-end bar, they would be served something of that quality. So I also make the rounds with the local bartenders here in San Francisco who I tend to gravitate to. And they've told me, hey, that's good stuff. So (laughs) I feel like I've I've got the, the stamp of approval from them. And so finally, what are the first few places you hope to visit in in San Francisco when we return to normalcy? And what are a couple of bars that you would get on a plane to visit? Yeah, great question, because I'm dying to get on a plane to go visit a couple of them (laughs) right now. Uh, But, you know, my my favorite in San Francisco remains Pacific Cocktail Haven right above Union Square on Sutter. Not just for the cocktails, which are phenomenal, but the whole staff there reminds me of every time I go in there, just what great client service is about. And you can take a lesson in our business from other service businesses and and how people treat their clients. And that bar was just uh, recognized as the top bar in America. And the head bartender there is the top U.S. bartender, Kevin Dietrich. Wonderful guy. If you ever get a chance to to speak with him, and when you come out, David, we'll go meet with him. But my goal is to get to New York before springtime to do the trifecta on the Lower East Side of Amoria Margo, Death & Co., and then finish it up at PDT. So let me know if you got time for that. And if not, <laughs> if not, we'll meet in London. And I think that will be a dangerous night for the two of us. <laughs> well, Luke, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great having you. Fantastic, David. Thanks a lot for having me. And look forward to speaking with you soon. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus. Mm-hmm.